We are continuing this week talking about leaning into this new reality that the apostles convince us and are persuaded themselves has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are utterly persuaded that something in the universe has changed, fundamentally altered by the fact that this Messiah was put in the first century electric chair for everyone to see, and then he was resurrected three days later. The world has changed. The beginning of the end has started. God's future has broken into the present, and people are being summoned. We are being invited, and the world around us too, to lean into this new world that God is creating right now, to this new reality to give people a sense of a pilot project of what God's up to on the earth. As we start our words today, I didn't do it in the earlier service, but I thought I may as well today. We've had a little theme of letting Ron Swanson visit us. And so we may as well do that again. Our mustachioed Libertarian says in an interview with Ann Perkins, as she asks him, how many drinks of alcohol do you consume a week? And he responds by saying one. And she says, that's it? One drink? And he says, one shelf. And then she says, do you exercise? And he says, yes. And he says one thing he does. And he says, and also I do woodworking. And then she says, well, do you have any history of mental illness in your family? And he answers, With certitude, I have an uncle who does yoga. (laughs) Last week it was contractors. This week it is yoga. Sorry, Blair. This is Ron Swanson speaking. His version of reality, his vision of reality, said to him that if my uncle does yoga, he must be crazy. He must have a few screws loose, a few cogs missing, must not be playing with a full deck. His elevator must not go all the way to the top. The Apostle Paul is accusing the people at Galatia of being crazy, an uncle doing yoga. He has corrected Peter in front of everybody and explained that reason for that correction. At the end of chapter 2, he says, I do not... Set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be attained through works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. One of the things that the apostle is trying to do, saying, if you're a Christian person, or any person, and you can live your life without it being stained in some substantial way, without it being flavored, in some exhaustive way by this central fact in human history, namely the death of Jesus Christ, then you're crazy. You're not living in accordance with reality. You're not aligning yourself with what's true about the universe. And so he's saying, we've got to think about why did Christ die? Did he die for nothing or did he die for something? Did he die for foolish, vain reasons or did he die for comprehensive, gladdening reasons? 
And of course, the apostle says he died for gladdening, comprehensive reasons. And we have to keep that in front of our heads. And so he, he shakes them. You foolish Galatians, you idiots. Who's tricked you? Who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? He's like a, a football coach who seemed to have a great affection for me. Often grabbing me in the mask looking me lovingly in the eyes and saying, Young blood, what are you doing? <laughs> Which was his way of saying, You're making so many fine contributions to the team. <laughs> You're playing so thoughtfully. You're bringing such athleticism to bear. I just want you to know by being really close to you that I'm, I'm really grateful. And then it was always followed up with a hug. Thank you for laughing. You know that's a lie. But the apostle knows something has gone wrong, and so he's up in their grill. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This is on the tales of him saying, if righteousness could be attained by works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. What the apostle is trying to do He's saying it is utterly crazy if you are going to fashion a life, if you are going to spend this afternoon or your time in a meeting on Wednesday morning or your vacation this summer or a sales call on Tuesday. It is utterly ridiculous for you to work out your life to determine what you ought to do and how you ought to do it without realizing the story that you're in without realizing the nature of the universe that you're in, without realizing that God has stepped into it, and there is a defining factor that has changed all of human history forever. It is substantial, it is significant, and you ignore it to your own peril. You become a crazy person. You become a deceived person. You become a bewitched person. You become truly a person on the wrong side of history. That's a famous and favorite retort of progressive people. Don't be on the wrong side of history. And the apostle would say, if you forget, if you scrub out the crucifixion of Jesus from your life, if you delete him from the document of your life, you will be on the wrong side of history. And he's incredulous about this because he wants these folks in this church to realize what they're doing when they forget about the, res- uh, the crucifixion. Why did Jesus die? It's worth us thinking about a little bit this morning. Why did he die? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important that Paul's getting all lathered up about it? Isn't it enough for him to say, well, you guys are being sincere. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Go ahead, get circumcised. Chop the whole thing off. He's what he says later. That's the Bible says that, not me. I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That's what he says later. He's so torqued up about this. Why is he torqued up about it? It doesn't matter what you believe so long as it's sincere, right? The apostle said, Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. If righteousness could be attained by works of the law, if there was a way for you to matter in front of the eyes of the only one who matters, 
If there was a way for you to be accepted into the heart of things by anything you could do, by any way that you could be, by anything you could refrain from, then Christ didn't have to die. See, this is central to history because this is for the repair of the world and for every person sitting in a white chair today and in pews. And everybody you know. I would like, he says, to ask one thing of you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? See, there is a dividing line that the Apostle wants to set before this church. And we can overhear and have it set before us. It says this. You've got to answer one of two questions. What is the most important action in your life? Is it the action of God for you or is it your action for God? What is the most important thing in all the world? Is it God's action for us? Or is it our action in the world? Now, our action in the world is important. The Apostle Paul would say, of course it's important. In fact, our action in the world or our inaction or our bad actions can get us eternal death. They can get us judgment. They can get us the eternal frown of God and separated out from the life of the world to come. And yes, we believe those crazy things. And Paul doesn't want anybody to know that. He wants everybody to to take a big, juicy bite of the grace of God that has said, God has made a prior action for us that ought to preference and precede everything that we do. That we ought to always keep in mind and never, ever forget. And so he asked him this question. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you have God come into your life, cleanse you, Make you want him back. Make you start to care about pleasing him. Not getting him off your back, but just actually wanting to please him. Did he work in you and rearrange you and help create love in your heart and praise on your lips? Did he do all of that because you were so earnestly following him and seeking him? Or did he do it because when you heard the story of his welcome and this invitation that said anybody can come, And you believed it. How did you get God in your life? Was it because you were on this search? Or is it because God himself just opened up and gave to you freely? He keeps going. It's the same questions. Are you, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? God's action or yours? God's activity or yours? It's so easy to forget Christ crucified, clearly portrayed, clearly depicted in front of our eyes. And the apostle does not want this Galatian church to do it. Now, I want to ask you to consider a few things of how we might consider Christ crucified, how we might not set aside the grace of God, how we might realize that it is by listening and believing that the Spirit works in us, not by anything that we manage to do or stop doing. One, I'll tell you this. If you start getting a hold of this, if you realize this reality, that God's prior action for you on the cross has, has settled things, has righted the score between you and Him, has earned the smile of God for you, has made it as if you have never sinned and as if you've been as righteous as Jesus. If you believe that, 
It will change your event interpretation in your life. Do you know things happen to you? Bad things happen to you. They happen around you. Frustrating things. Awful things. Tyrannizing things. Confusing things. Dismaying things. And we are always giving interpretations to them. It's baseball season. When I was a senior in high school, I was taking my warm-up tosses. I was pitching in a game. And the umpire was a man who had umpired me since I was a little kid. And now he was umpiring upper school games. And there had just been a controversial play at the plate the inning before that went against us. My coach was displeased. That's all, just displeased. But nobody's ever displeased without showing it on a baseball field. And so I was taking my warm-up pitches, and I had this knuckle curve that, you know, didn't work. And, well, it sometimes worked, and when it worked, it was fantastic. When it didn't, and a lot of times, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And so I was taking my warm-up tosses, and I threw one, and the umpire was back against the backstop. He had his back turned to me. I threw it in the dirt. The catcher missed it. The ball perfectly bounce, 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 and hit him in the calf. The, the umpire. The umpire, being hit with a baseball in the calf, immediately turned around and said, You're out of here! He threw me out of the game. I was devastated. He tossed me from a game for hitting him. That's what you're supposed to do, I guess, if a pitcher on purpose hits you. But he misinterpreted everything. Because he didn't know my intentions. And it was so hurtful to me because my coach had argued with him. I explained to him. I explained to him later. Years later. I wasn't doing it on purpose. I saw him somewhere. He didn't believe me. See, he didn't trust me. So he thought that my coach had told me to hit him. And that somehow I was excellent enough of a pitcher that I could throw a bad pitch in the dirt and make it bounce and hit him in the leg. Foolish Galatian umpire. But you see, he misunderstood my intentions toward him. And therefore, he misinterpreted the situation. I was not trying to hit him. I just couldn't control the ball. One of the things that will happen to you if you scrub out the crucifixion of Christ from your life and you start to think that what God is doing is scrutinizing you and looking for ways in which you violate His laws, that He's looking up there for ways to get you. Ah, there you were. You're being too selfish. You didn't do your quiet time. Flat tire. <laughs> you didn't help the poor. I'm going to make you poor. You were mean to your kid. I'm going to give you shingles that you are going to start to imagine sometimes that God, when something bad happens to you, either doesn't like you, or He's getting you, He's angry with you. And the Apostle would urge us in our event interpretation to say, look, Christ crucified. The perfect Son of God who never did anything wrong was cursed on my behalf so that I could be blessed. God won't curse me if I'm in Christ. But I will have sufferings in my life like, like Jesus had in his life. 
I'm one with him. I'm connected to him. Our lives are intertwined. And so his sufferings are going to flow over into my life. It doesn't mean God hates me. It means that I'm his. This is how he treats his sons and daughters. It's how he matures them and disciplines them and trains them and weans them off themselves. Believing this will help you with event interpretation. It will also help you with your defensiveness. You get defensive sometimes. Most of the people I know like to be criticized. I'm around a lot of really mature people in the church and out in the world. And most people, you're like, you're doing that all wrong. And they're like, oh, is that right? Will you teach me more? How am I doing it wrong? Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it. Thank you. That's how most people respond to criticism. Even the insinuation that you might be doing something wrong, most people are just flowery and exuberant and letting you know how grateful they are. I'm being facetious. I hope you understand. No, if you're like me a lot of times, you're going to instantly want to defend yourself. You're going to instantly want to say, oh yeah? Well, you're stupid. You're going to want to defend yourself. You're going to want to make a case. You're going to want to show why it's so important that they understand that they're wrong and that you're actually right. If you don't believe this is that work, then just... uh, have a discussion with somebody about vaccines or what you feed your kids or should moms work outside the home or not or any of these uncontentious issues, gender identity, just something mild and say something that's even approaching a criticism and see how people react. And if you start to realize, though, that Christ crucified means that Christ did not die for nothing means that there are aspects of me that are far worse than I ever have even approached understanding. Then you can embrace what Charles Spurgeon once said. When you are criticized, don't get mad, but say to yourself, you know you're right. There are far worse things about me. See, a person who starts to realize that the only way that I have any interest in God is because his prior interest in me, and because of the kind of person I am, because of the frivolousness of me, because of the flimsiness of my faith, because of the wobbliness of my obedience, the only thing that gets me in a relationship with God is that Christ died in my place. He became cursed so I could be blessed. If I really believe that, When I am criticized, I realize I don't have anything to defend. I don't need to justify myself. They're probably right. And even if they're not, does that diminish my personhood? I belong to Jesus Christ who has died for me. And I'm not going to scrub him out of the center of my life. It can help you with your defensiveness. It can help you with event interpretation. It can help you with defensiveness. It can also help you in understanding how you, how you define yourself. We've talked about this some, but listen to what Paul tells these Galatians. He says, You know, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. Paul's very repetitive in this stuff. It seems to be very important to him. The Galatian church, as we may have discussed in the past, has entered into a situation much like we do. 
they were not seeking God. They were outside of God. They, you could just imagine them as like Californians, okay? It's a joke. It's like a, you know, it's like a southern snobbery joke against Californians. As if Californians don't have that against us. Okay. They're without hope, without God in the world. It's not like they came into contact with God because they were, they were so righteous and they had tried so very hard and suddenly God's like, you know, these people are just killing it and, and, and self-forgetting love for the world and I need to invite them to my house. I need to say, you want to be part of my family? You want to be part of the new world? I owe them this. Paul's made the argument, of course, that the way they got in on this game was purely a gift of God. They heard this story about Jesus, they believed it, and everything changed. Their scales fell off, their hearts were free, they rose, went forth, and followed thee. So they had this joy, this joy, like the joy of falling in love, this, this new chemical reaction that happens in people's lives. They had it. They were excited. Later on in the book, he says, what has happened to all your joy? But then they lost it. See, because at first they felt forgiven. They knew they belonged to Jesus. They thought, oh my gosh, God will accept me no matter what. That's amazing. On the basis of the work of Jesus, amazing. But then here's what happens, and it happens to us too. You get cleaned up. You belong to God. You're excited about it. And then you have the problem of reality. You realize, I'm a moody cuss. Why am I so angry all the time? Why do I get my feelings hurt so much? Why am I tyrannizing everybody with my emotions? How come I'm so lusty, so greedy, so gluttonous? How come I'm coveting all the time? How come I get so mad when good things happen to other people? How come I get so happy when bad things happen to them? But I don't want to say that out loud. Why do I have so many bad habits that I can't shake? Why don't I, why don't I like reading the Bible more? What's wrong with me? How come prayer is so hard? How come I know I'm supposed to give, but I don't like it so much? The Bible says I love a cheerful giver. That sounds like a bunch of propaganda to me. You have these moments where you realize there's something in you that makes following Jesus very difficult. You're not so good. And you start to wonder, what am I going to do about that? How can I fix that? And you have such a predisposition to say, my action is going to have to fix that. And then somebody comes along and says, you know what your problem is? You haven't subdued the flesh. You need to get circumcised. Ah. Circumcision. You need to adopt the law of Moses. Ah, You're right. Maybe if I created a boundary around my life, then and entered into it more, then I would be more holy, then I would be more righteous, then I would have my desires changed. And so this church, these former pagans who have now been converted, have been hoodwinked into thinking they don't just need to trust Jesus and his works to be right in God's eyes. They need to get circumcised. They need to adopt the law of Moses. And Paul says, you don't understand what you're doing when you say that. Because here's, here are the rules. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. 
And by everything in Hebrew, uh, Greek, Hebrew, uh, <laughs> everything in Greek means all things. All the things. Anybody in here who has taken the Bible seriously and thought, I need to do this, hopefully has been crushed by the Bible before. Anybody who takes it seriously gets crushed by it sometimes. As one lawyer once told me, in a highly regulated environment, a high regulatory environment, you are bound to fish in a pond that you're not supposed to be fishing in. If you do your own taxes, I've learned this theory. I've been doing our taxes for the last 20 years of marriage. And I've learned this. That any tax question I have, and I'm, I have a sensitive enough conscience and I'm a comprehensive enough neurotic person that I'm going to burrow down and keep looking at statutes and reading the IRS regulations. And as I read, the more I read, the more I come away thinking, oh my gosh, I've probably cheated on our taxes every year that I've been alive. <laughs> but not wittingly. I just get to where I'm like, I can't read anymore about the tax code because the more I read about the tax code, it's going to tell me something. I got a pair of shoes for Christmas. I should have claimed it. When there are so many laws, you're bound to be breaking them. And Paul says, you don't want to get into a situation where you are leaning on your ability to keep God's commandments as the way to be part of God's people and part of his pleasure. Because that is a losing battle. He later tells them, if you let yourselves get circumcised, Christ will be erased from your life. He won't matter to you at all. Because what you will have been doing, you will have shifted your determination to receive from Christ and rest everything on Him to saying, there are some things I need to do for God to like me. Don't do it, he says. Everybody who depends on the law is cursed if you don't keep all of the law. Now, so think about this. Think about your own life. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. There's not anybody in here, I don't think, who's trying to follow Christ, who doesn't also think, if I could just get rid of this one fault in my life, I've got this one bad habit. I get explosively angry at my, at my family, at my coworkers, at small animals, at cars on the road, at trees that are blowing in the wind. I have an anger problem, maybe you say. Or if I could just stop chewing tobacco. This tobacco's eating my lunch. I think about it all the time. I just want to chew tobacco all the time. I can't, I just, if I could just stop chewing tobacco, or if I, I just have this bad body image. If I could stop obsessing over food and trying to to purge what, I, what I've taken in, if I could just get a healthy relationship to food, or, or I could stop overeating, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's pornography, some kind of sexual impoliteness. I could just stop doing this. Whew. I'd be a whole new person. But it might not just be refraining from things. It might be something that you keep thinking, I need to start doing this. I need to be taking care of the poor more sacrificially. If, I'm, if I just started taking care of the poor more sacrificially, then, then I'd be all right. If I, just, if I just had a more comprehensive Christian worldview, if I, just, if I just was more generous, if I just prayed more, I just evangelized. I don't share my faith enough. I just need to evangelize more. 
There's no end to how you might fill in the blank, but I guarantee all of us have something or another like that. Something we ought to stop doing or something we need to start doing more. It's the not enoughs or too muches. Now here's the trick of it. Here's where you get hoodwinked. Here's when, why Paul would say, who has bewitched you? Because there's a bewitcher out there who would love it if you would spend the rest of the day and all of tomorrow thinking about yourself. There's a bewitcher out there who loves, loves, loves for you to think about what you're doing and what you're not doing and who loves for you to feel condemned and who loves for you to just keep working up a new determination to do better. I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better. And Satan loves it. He loves religious people for that reason because they keep thinking they're going to do better and finally God's going to like them. And Paul says, you are not understanding how this game works. Everyone who relies on the law must keep all the parts of the law. Here's what you're accidentally saying. You're saying, hey, if I could just stop looking at porn, then I would be an absolutely sterlingly righteous person that God would have to accept. What you're implicitly saying but not realizing is, if I didn't have this bad habit, I would, in other respects, every other way, I would be a person who could be said to have loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself, who always kept the Lord's day holy, who never had angry thoughts, who never coveted. I'm a perfectly righteous person except for one thing. I get mad sometimes. Is that really what you want to say? Paul would say, don't fool yourselves. You're way worse than that. So you don't want to go down this path of justifying yourself of thinking, I just need to do more. What you need to do is you need to get out of that game altogether. Oh, granite. Corby, did you do that? This is recorded, so I won't cuss. But I wanted to. That's what dog granite meant. If you remember why Christ was crucified, you say, look, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That Jesus, Jesus was cursed. So I wouldn't be cursed. I'm supposed to receive the curses of not keeping the law. I can't keep all of it. Oh, may you know you can't keep all of it so that you have the extraordinary relief of saying, but he has. And I'm not going to look at myself. I'm going to keep looking at him. When you receive the Spirit of God, I can guarantee you this. Here's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God says, look at him. The Spirit of God does not say, hey, look at yourself, condemn yourself, berate yourself, hate yourself. Get more determination. Think more about yourself. Think more about your failures. Look at all the ways you're failing. The Spirit of God does not do that because the Spirit of God likes you. And He wants to say, here's how you get out. Get out of yourself and look at the one who was cursed for you, Jesus Christ. In Marilyn Robinson's book, Home, this father is telling his prodigal son, he's just scolding him. He said, I promised promised you son that if you ever came back I promised myself a thousand times that I would never reprimand you if you came back I wouldn't say anything I would just be glad and here I have reprimanded you I'm so sorry and his son says to him it's okay dad I deserved it and the father says to him why do you do that why don't you let God decide what you deserve 
Nobody deserves anything. It's all grace. Maybe if you believed that, you'd be able to relax a little. Maybe if you believed that, you'd be able to relax a little. None of us is getting what we deserve, but Christ got what we deserved. And that's why Paul says, don't eject him from your life. Don't erase him from your vision. Don't delete him from your documents. Don't get him out of your sight. Let his death, him being a curse for you, always be before you and don't set aside the grace of God. My professor used to say, our professor used to say, Steve Brown, when I came to RTS, I noticed all these neurotic students trying to do really well. They wanted to get everything perfect. They were diligently taking notes all the time. And so I would say to them at the beginning of class, class, you've all got A's. Now put down your pens and listen to me. The accreditation people said, you can't do that. You can't just give A's. They have to earn it. So he, can't, he couldn't keep doing that. But the theory, the theory is a profound one. It's the way that children work so well in families where they're well-loved is that we say to these kids, they, wo- they come into our lives and they say, son, you've already got an A. You're, you're already pre-loved. You're already mine. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to stop you from being mine. Now, now accept that you're accepted here. Relax and enjoy that you're enjoyed here. Be glad that you're wanted here. And then go out and live out of that. That's the relief that comes from believing that Christ did not die for nothing. I hope you can believe it. Let's pray. You'll turn to your bulletin, page 2.